Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Welcome back to Turd Nerds, everyone. Today we're going to be having Dr. Gervitz tell us all about EPI. You might be wondering, what is EPI? (laughs) Dr. Gervitz, do you want to start with a definition? Great. Uh, So EPI is exocrine pancreas insufficiency. And if we're honest, understanding this diagnosis really helps you understand who you can help with the treatment of diarrhea disorders. So exocrine pancreas insufficiency is just what it sounds like. There is an insufficiency of pancreatic function. When we're talking about pancreatic function, you know, we usually think about it as like what happens with insulin. And that is the endocrine function of the pancreas. So 5% of pancreatic secretions is for insulin. The other 95% of pancreatic secretions are the exocrine uh, function. Exocrine function is digestion. Okay. Wow. So it's not just half and half. I was always imagining the pancreas being half. No, it's 95% digestive. Wow. Yeah. Is there actually any correlation with someone having a problem with one arm and the other? I just thought of that. So my my response to that is yes, we definitely see that. And the way we see that is with insulin, with diabetic patients, mm-hmm. what will happen is they will often start suffering from their exocrine function. Okay. Also with diabetic patients, especially type one diabetic patients, you have the bowel changes, you're more likely to have digestive disorders, including diarrhea. And the other thing that I noticed, like 10 or 15 years ago, which uh, is if you have a type one or a type one and a half diabetic and you give them enzymes, it actually helps their dawn blood sugar, Whoa. which is kind of something we stumbled on that works. Yep. And I might be jumping the gun here, but what about chronic or acute pancreatitis? Oh, that's always going to cause an EPI disorder. Cool. Yeah. It's going to be a bummer. Not cool for those folks, but interesting. Better yeah. for us to know about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the function of the pancreas. Uh, What happens is the enzymes that are secreted into the duodenum, into the top of the small intestine from the pancreas is elastase, amylase, trypsin, and chymotrypsin, right? So those are the four big digestive uh, secretions. Those, what the stomach will, once food comes in there, the stomach will dump a bunch of cholecystokinine, secretin, and and then it'll like mix it together. And and when you mix food and those enzymes, that's called chyme. The chyme will then stimulate the pancreas to secrete, and the the pancreas will secrete amylase, lipase, and protease. Mm -hmm. Amylase for carbs, lipase for fat, and protease for protein. uh, protein. Right. And then that will tell the uh, pancreas to then at that point secrete elastase to like kind of monitor that whole function. And so what we're looking at generally when we're looking at if the pancreas is working and we're looking at it from a 
uh, lab test, we're looking at elastase, but really elastase is like an indirect way of measuring your lipase, amylase, and protease. And is that just because, sorry, no, is that just because we, we don't have a good test for those other ones? No, it's because those other ones are so changeable that uh, basically what you eat or supplementation that you take will grossly change all of those markers. And so can you talk a little bit more about elastase? I might have Missed it for a moment, but tell, yeah. So, tell us a little bit again so about. when we're talking about EPI, first of all, let's talk about symptoms, okay. right? What happens with uh, EPI generally is it's a diarrhea disorder. It, you will sometimes see constipation with these patients, but it's exceptionally rare to see constipation. Generally, these patients are having diarrhea. Okay. So, in my clinical practice, where all I treat is the GI, right? I am looking at a patient comes in and they're coming in with a presentation of diarrhea, and in my back, the back of my head, I'm algorithming them, right? Does it sound like this is an infectious diarrhea? Does it sound like it's a large bowel bacterial overgrowth? Do they have a lot of bloating? Do they have a lot of pain? Does it sound like it's a large bowel issue where, you know, maybe it's a microscopic colitis or maybe it's a gastroenteritis? Is it acute or chronic onset? And in that acute or chronic onset, I'm always thinking about EPI as one of the symptoms. And there's quite a bit of overlap too with some of the ones that you In fact, when we're talking about underlying causes of EPI, bacterial overgrowth is one of the underlying causes. Small bacterial or? Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is one of the causes. Yeah. So I'm assuming probably other overgrowths as well. I would assume. Protozoal infections, but maybe we don't have as much data on those. We definitely don't have as much data on them. And what about um, H. pylori? Uh, you know, H. pylori causing, I, I mean, when I'm looking at an H. pylori patient, what the key, the keynote that I'm looking for is some kind of ulcer-like pain. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to treat an H. pylori patient unless they have the acute pain right. because I don't even know. H, I don't think that, I think it's been very well proven that H. pylori is not bad on all fronts. There are G, these certain subsets of H. pylori that are very bad. Very dangerous, and we better do a whole episode on H. pylori. I think we should. And I guess the one thing with H. pylori is we do know it can cause hypochondria, which could mm-hmm. mess up the signaling for the pancreatic enzymes. For sure. And predispose to SIBO. For right. sure. For oh, sure. In a, in a certain number of patients, since a lot of the world is right. colonized with H. pylori and is fine. Right, and it's fine. I have another question. We often use enzymes for digestive function, even in patients with constipation. Are, do you think we're doing maybe something else along the lines of the enzymes in the duodenum as opposed to replacing pancreatic enzymes in those cases? So can we, let me talk about that in okay. the end, because I have okay. a lot of opinions about that. Okay. And I think that there's a different uh, treatment path for uh, animal-based enzymes yeah. and vegetarian enzymes. And if it's the pancreas, exocrine, EPI versus like the duodenal villi right. are having an issue right. and we're giving enzymes for that. Right. So, okay. th- so we use them differently. Okay. And before we jump out of physiology here and just the basics of the pancreas, can you clarify what happens differently in bile acid malabsorption and exocrine pancreatic insufficiency? So the reality is both of those disorders, bile acid malabsorption and EPI, are both bile is or or fat malabsorption is a key sign for both of them. But the fat malabsorption is happening in different parts of the intestine. The fat malabsorption that comes from EPI is starting right at the top in the duodenum. The fat malabsorption that's coming from bile acid malabsorption comes from the bottom of the small bowel because the small bowel is not resorbing the bile. And then the bile hits the large bowel and pulls in a ton of water and causes a ton of peristalsis, right? With EPI, what's happening is the pancreas is not getting proper signaling to secrete the lipase to bind with a fat. And so both of them, you can have a bile dumping diarrhea, but the underlying cause is different. 
Okay. Got it. And then symptomology, do they present differently? I'm going to say that not always. As you know, both of those disorders, it's a graded disorder, right? So some of it is caused, some of the people have severe EPI or severe bile acid malabsorption. You know, that we it's really remiss for us to talk about EPI and not mention cystic fibrosis mm -hmm, because right. cystic fibrosis patients, this is one of the keynotes. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the data on actually on EPI is done with CF patients. Right. However, there's a spectrum and there are definitely EPI patients and bilas and malabsorption patients who they also have um, a mild to moderate EPI. Mm -hmm. And those people are still going to have diarrhea, but the diarrhea might not be as regular as other, uh, you know, as severe patients. And it's also going to be way harder to find right. those patients. Right. And you could potentially have both. You could potentially have both, but you generally, I think there's more data on EPI mm -hmm. and there's better testing for sure for EPI. There's better testing for EPI. Are you going to tell us about that? Is it time? <laughs> Before we, before we leave, one last thing, who, like when, when a patient comes to you and with a symptom picture, mm -hmm. what would make you think EPI over bile acid malabsorption? Is it small bowel involvement? No, honestly, that is such a hard question. Okay. I think that you're thinking for, you're thinking about other digestive signs. Got it. And I think the reality is that it's generally easy to test for EPI, mm -hmm. and it's really, really hard to test for bile acid malabsorption. And so there's a little bit of throwing spaghetti against the wall. Right. So test for what we can. It's kind of like when you're talking about CFL mm -hmm. to some degree, and if we can rule out obvious things that we have testing for. Yep. So basically anyone with chronic diarrhea, we would think about it. So let's talk about the obvious, right? Okay. Cystic fibrosis always, uh, chronic or acute pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer patients. Mm -hmm. Also, any kind of uh, change, like a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, have a lot of EPI. Diabetes has a lot of EPI. Celiac, any malabsorption disorder can suffer from EPI, including mm -hmm. celiac inflammatory bowel disease, uh, resections, either, uh, you know, secondary to Crohn's disease or, um, you know, for obesity. Mm -hmm. uh, any kind of clogging of the uh, pancreatic duct can cause a problem. As you age, you're more susceptible to develop EPI. And then, um, honestly, interestingly, dairy sensitivity. And that has a lot to do with the fact of fluid that gets pulled in to the bowel when you can't break down lactase. So is it okay. folks lactose. with dairy sensitivity who are eating dairy? Yes. Okay. Yes. What about folks without a gallbladder? That would, that would not affect EPI, but it definitely could cause bile acid malabsorption. Got it. And chronic pancreatitis, uh, I've had some cases where, so I don't know likely as much as you about that. I've had a handful of patients. Is it anyone who's ever had like a longer bout of pancreatitis or how are you defined? I guess, um, how would we know with a new patient? They said, okay, I've had pancreatitis in the past. We check their amylase lipase. It, it's not always going to be elevated. That's a pretty good place okay. to start, though, is okay. checking the amylase lipase. Okay. Serum. Serum. The normal yep. ones we would check for acute. I feel like I've had an occasional patient where it was confusing because they had a diagnosis of chronic pancreatitis. Their enzymes were normal, but they were still having severe malabsorption. But it sounds like typically in a chronic yeah. case, you'll see the elevated enzymes. Yeah. Okay. And you also might see the, uh, you know, an uh, inflamed Mouse. pancreas or even a shrunken pancreas after long amounts of chronic. On imaging. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you kind of just follow that track. Okay. I would love to hear about testing. Okay, great. So uh, 
let me, the testing is interesting because there's the gold standard and then there's what we do that's really easy. And this is actually really important for me. I'm going to tell you guys about a, a clinical patient in a minute. But uh, so the gold standard for testing is um, you it's can- going to be another stool collection for 24 hours. So the answer is there are two ways to do testing. One of the testing is the stool collection to look for uh, fat malabsorption. So this is that gross test right. where you have them do this crazy high fat diet for six days. They collect their stool for three. These are diarrhea. For three days? For three days. The second, you know, so they- uh, it's awful. Right, right. So they do the diet for three days and then they collect their stool for another three days while also doing the diet. Oh, uh, they are collecting all of their stool. These are diarrhea patients with fat malabsorption. So they're going to have a lot of stool. So no one is going to do this test. It's really hard to Very get compliance. Very low compliance. Yeah. I mean, unless, unless somebody is really, really eager to get a diagnosis and or they're fed up or hospitalized. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one test, but that's not the gold standard. The gold standard is actually called um, a secretin crawlin test so basically this test is an endoscopy and uh under endoscopy they do iv secretin secretin is what will stimulate the pancreatic enzymes and what they do on this test is they have them on uh under for two hours and they collect a sample every 15 minutes and they're measuring bicarb amylase trypsin lipase and elastase right so that's the gold standard right the easier test that we do is something called a fecal elastase one that's a stool test you know the the gold standard is under sedation with endoscopy like pretty invasive the test that we generally do is a fecal elastase one which is a stool sample our functional labs run this quest lab runs this hospitals run this, this is a very common test it is also exceptionally well predicted i think that for uh, severe cases, it's 93% sensitive and 93% specific, right? Wow. So highly, highly predictive, except if it's a diarrhea sample. Oh. And that's tricky because if it's a diarrhea sample, most of these people are diarrhea, it is basically watering down the amount of elastase that you're collecting in the stool. Right. And so it will very commonly give you a false negative. So, sorry, a false, false positive, positive, a false positive. That. Yep. And so the trick is when you see your, you educate the patient that if they can get you a form stool sample, that would be great. A lot of time that's impossible, especially with severity. And if not, then you know, there's a little bit of an asterisk on that finding. And what tools could you use to get a form stool? Could you use Imodium? You could use Imodium. That does not change. It's a very stable sample. Cool. It's also very stable for multiple freeze rates. So yeah. if you freeze it again and again over a seven-day period, it still maintains its stability. But let's go back to the um, secret and chlorine test. I'm totally butchering that. Uh, sorry. Um, okay, so I had a patient who came in and she had a fecal elastase one of, I think, like four. It was crazy. Uh -huh. And when we talked about symptoms of EPI, she was like, holy shit, I have every single one of those symptoms. And they were, to recap. They, they're diarrhea, they're bloating, they're fat malabsorption, they're steatorrhea within the greasy stool, stools. greasy stools. Yeah, everything, mal if she feels like she felt like she wasn't absorbing her nutrients, remember, whenever you have fat malabsorption, you also have fat-soluble vitamin malabsorption. So her vitamin D was totally in the to toilet. Her lipids were really low. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the risks of having low lipids, but it's a risk. Yeah. You know, she's not getting any of her essential fish oils, uh, vitamin D, vitamin K, like all of the fat solubles are not being absorbed. And so, you know, we sent her for a proper workup with a gastro and the gastro ran this gold standard, but she 
uh, injected secretin mm -hmm. into the vein and collected within a minute or two, and they did one collection. Okay. And they said your pancreas is fine because you failed the gold standard. And so it's really important to remember the gold standard is not one one bout. It's looking every 15 minutes for two hours. And so have you had any patients actually get that done? No, because the reality of a test like that is it's generally done in the lab. That's what it comes down to is it's done in the lab. Right. And so basically they were like, you don't have a frank pancreatic insufficiency. And I was like, I call BS on that diagnosis. That test was not done correctly. Yeah. Uh, so you call them up and let them know what you thought. I mean, <laughs> no, but I said, I'm going to continue to treat you like an EPI patient. Right. So you wouldn't consider trying to solidify stool and retest the stool elastase. I think it's a damn good idea. Of course, that could also shift the results because now it's holding more elastase in there for longer, but as long as they're not constipated, it so shouldn't be that much of a variety. If stool consistency is such a um, predictor of uh, specificity of this test, how, how, because these patients kind of by definition have loose stools. I mean, but you know what's interesting about these patients is they don't always have every single one of their stools loose. Yeah. Like it, there is a gradient so with these patients. maybe just have a, an order standing. Yeah. And when you get that solid stool, bring it in. And you know what I often talk to patients about is, can you tell? Like, you know, yeah. when you get your urge, can you tell? And yeah. most of them are like, oh, I can tell. Yeah. Oh, I can tell I got to hurry. Or I can tell I got some time. Yeah. And so that's one of the ways we work around it. Yeah. The other way we work around it is just by supplementation. So should we talk about that? So you were going to talk a little bit more about elastase, just to explain a little bit more about like why we're checking that marker. What it, it is it just a, another enzyme in comparison to lipase, amylase, et cetera, if you can talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so basically elastase, um, one of the benefits of elastase is it doesn't cause any cross-reactivity, right? So supplementing either pharmaceutically or nat or with a supplement with amylase, lipase, or protease actually does not cause any change in that elastase marker. Wow. Okay. Right. So basically why that's important is they do not need to discontinue their enzymatic wow. supplementation when testing for an elastase. And you know, one of the, one of the lectures that I gave was looking at a bunch of stool markers for functional GI labs that we use just to see if there's any validity. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at that, the fecal elastase one has like a ton of validity, right? But markers like alpha chymotrypsin and chymotrypsin has no validity, but it also has huge instability mm -hmm. where that sample will change between like every day or every four hours. Okay. So what makes elastase so special is it's stable. It's very well validated uh, to the gold standard, which is impossible to do. And uh, it does not affect, it's not affected by diet or by supplementation. So you don't need patients to discontinue anything? No. Okay. And any is, enzyme. Is there any role, is there any role in serum testing? I don't even know if there's a serum test that exists, but my, so my answer is no. Okay. Like we're looking for stool. Serum lipase amylase. Oh, 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 that's different. Those are different markers. So my answer is no, not, not for this particular, not for EPI. Okay. And elastase is just a different enzyme secreted by the pancreas, but not specifically breaking down any of those macro macronutrients that we talked about. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. Should we move on? Let's I move feel on. Ready. Okay. I feel ready. Okay. So now let's move on to treatment, right? And when we're talking about treatment, we're talking about pharmaceuticals, 
we're also talking about uh, natural yeah. supplements. And many times we're talking about both at the same time. So when we're talking about pharmaceuticals, the generic is called pancreolipase. That drug is measured based on units of lipase. And so every single drug that you see will, the so basically when we're looking at any pancreolipase product, we'll see like 36,000 comma, 112,000 comma 5 like so, you know yeah. the first number on there is always going to be the lipase but it does contain amylase and protease as well but it does contain amylase and protease as well and i can't i think it's i think it goes lipase amylase protease i need to double yeah, check yeah i'm not sure we should, can we and it's from an animal it's all animal i think it's generally pig based yeah mm -hmm. and what we really are thinking about the major the the biggest concern about epi really comes down to the fact that you can't absorb your fat soluble vitamins when you can't absorb your fat soluble vitamins you are you deal with bone deterioration you deal with you know deterioration of your nervous system mm -hmm. and your brain both which are 70 percent fat i have to imagine it affects hormones too because hormones are right. synthesized out of absolutely yeah, exactly. That's important. So so that's why we're always going to prioritize the absorption of fat. So when you're looking at these pancreolipase drugs, the first thing you're going to see is amount of units of lipase. Those drugs will start at somewhere right around six units mm -hmm. and at the moment cap out at about 40,000 40, units. 6,000 units and 40,000 units. And then there's, depending on the drug that you're looking for, there's a lot of in between. How do you decide the dose? Trial and error. I okay. mean, honestly, let's be honest, trial and error. And I know a lot of the brand companies on their websites will list calculators based on weight. But those ranges and those calculators are really wide. Right. And so I'm I'm looking at what 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 is the size of my patient? Mm -hmm. How reactive are they to drugs in the past? Mm -hmm. How well do they to tolerate supplements? I will say that digestive enzymes, and we haven't even started talking about the natural ones, right. but digestive enzymes are one of the most common supplements that a patient will grab OTC, right? Without any direction. Mm -hmm. And so that's my other question is, did you tolerate it? The other thing you're always worrying about with drugs is, you know, pharmaceuticals are going to have a ton of fillers. Mm -hmm. They've got phthalates, you know, they if they encapsulate coloring. it, yeah, coloring, everything like that. Is this a patient who's highly sensitive? Mm -hmm. Because this is a population that we deal with with patients who are really sensitive. Right. So if it's a patient who's highly sensitive, then I will often uh, start with the supplements. And if it's a patient who is not sensitive, and you know, the thing about drugs is it's monopoly money, right? So sometimes insurance covers it and they have to pay no copay. And other times insurance doesn't cover it and it's $1,200,000 a month. Right. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that might be a little bit hyperbolic, but not sometimes. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm always factoring cost in, I'm always factoring how sensitive they are. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm always trying to find out, have you taken enzymes in the past? which ones mm -hmm. because we haven't even started talking about the vegetarian ones and there's a lot of diversity there what about symptom severity does that play a role in dosing for you you know uh definitely maybe mm -hmm. but what we know about symptom severity is it's sometimes more the reporter right. than the severity like right. if somebody is like stoic mm -hmm. they're gonna say no no big deal and you start asking them and they're and having run to the bathroom 10 times a 10 day. or 100 times a day yeah but someone who's having like liquid stool many times a day versus someone who has occasionally formed stool but these bouts of softer stool so i uh, generally i'm not sure it will predict my dosing got it i think what predicts my dosing more is i start at a dose and then i move up or down mm -hmm. depending because also pancreolipase has side effects okay so i have two questions 
one, it does have a scary side effect listed on the bottle, something about sclerosing. I don't remember exactly. It didn't, it anything sclerosing. <laughs> so I would like to know a little bit more about that. And I would like to know some information on your thoughts of when in conjunction with your meal, because I've heard so many different right. things on That's that. Really um, and I worry about, I've had patients that come in with a prescription that they tell me they've taken it before they start eating, which sounds scary to me. So I would love to know about those couple things. Okay, so we're still on drug because- Right, because the drug. The drug, okay. Yeah. So let's let's just give a quick, uh, you know, severe reactions to most pancreas lipase, it's a hypersensitivity to the drug, which is, you know, a reaction sure. for anybody. Uh, Fibrosing, fibrosing colonopathy, <laughs> not sclerosing. Fibrosing colonopathy, colonopathy intestinal obstruction, yeah, or viral transmission risk. Okay, and which is, uh, is the obstruction just because it solidifies stool for the first time? I think for that it might. Person? Okay, with and they probably have something else going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, however, the fibrosing, uh, the uh, intestinal obstruction. Okay. I want to know more about the fibrosing yeah. um, when you get to it. However, common reactions are gas, bloating, abdominal pain is the one that I see the most commonly. Mm -hmm. And generally that actually is a predictor of if they're taking too high of a dose. Got it. Okay. And so, uh, you know, itching, um, vomiting, like all the usual stuff, mm -hmm. low, uh, blood sugar, because, uh, high blood sugar, low blood sugar. Sometimes it can help you form stones because you're absorbing your fat so effectively. Okay. Uh, gas, constipation, diarrhea, like just all, all of the usual ones right. so someone with a history or current stones i've interestingly never seen that side effect yeah it's stated but i've never seen would it would we be cautious in those folks i mean we might want to think about starting lower dose for right, sure right, right. yeah and what do you know anything about the incidence of the fibrosis i don't the one that concerned me i've never seen <laughs> getting it getting back to that knowing and i wonder is that in certain populations rather than the general i population? wish i had a good answer for you okay. because folks i mean if they have fibrotic disorders you know, yeah. And also remember, these are most of these studies were done on cystic right, fibrosis exactly patients. Right. So maybe there's a higher likelihood. Okay. Um. So, and then so so, so dosing. When do you take it? Mm -hmm. So any oh sorry, any animal pH, uh, any animal based enzyme has a very narrow pH window. So basically, it is active between pH of six to eight in the stomach. And, you know, depending on what drug you take and when you look at their marketing, they're going to tell you, oh, we pH balance it to not go off to the duodenum, blah, blah, blah. Uh, however, it is important that you take the animal-based ones in the beginning of the meal. In so the beginning, it, not before you start eating. Like right as you start eating or like okay. right after you take a couple of bites. Okay. That is when it is going to be most active. That is not true for the vegetarian-based enzymes. So while the animal-based enzymes have this efficacy somewhere between pH of 6 and 9, the vegetarian enzymes, which are generally fungally based, mm -hmm. uh, they're mainly uh, grown in aspergillus, has a pH window of 2 to 12. So while the animal-based enzymes, the pancreolipase-based enzymes, are very, very effective at decreasing or breaking down your macros, the vegetarian enzymes are effective at breaking down macros. And depending on how you look at quantity in there, they have like a fair amount of enzyme activity in there, but they're also good at supporting the brush border of the small intestine. And so they also clean up the digestive system and so they have more of an effect that way. So you don't think the animal-based ones are as good at 
the brush border I don't. placement? And why do you think that is? Because I don't, because I think their pH window is I so see. narrow around digestion. So do you think that the animal-based enzymes, the idea is they're entering the same time as the food almost, and they're working in the beginning of the small intestine? Correct. Okay. And then, so all of those products on the market that are supplements uh -huh. of enzymes, they contain the amylase, lipase, and protease, but then they contain all of those other things, including HCL and probiotics and all these subdivisions mm -hmm. of enzymes. Alpha-galactidase and all right. those. Uh, so not, do, do they, they generally contain uh, lipase, protease, and amylase, right. but there's so many products on the market, I don't want to say always. Uh -huh. uh, and um, the interesting thing is the standardization like that's what drugs do better right. is they're good at standardizing right, right, right. so like there's two products that are basically pancreolipase right lower dose low, no exactly the same oh. dose as pancreolipase mm -hmm. not the highest dose but a middle dose mm -hmm. uh and that's all they have is amylase lipase and protease and then there are like a hundred products that have some uh, proteus, lipase, and amylase in there, but also a lot of different vegetarian enzymes. And those vegetarian enzymes are digesting different things. Right. So how do you time that? So it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. If you're doing it to support digestion, use time it in the beginning of a meal, right? Like with, you want to get it in there as soon as you can. If you're doing it to clean up the brush border, then actually stretching it out might work better. And is there a role for the brush border for EPI folks? I mean, definitely maybe for some people. Okay. But first we probably want to start with just helping them digest their food. Exactly. And get those nutrients absorbed. Exactly. And do you want to talk a little about the pH of the stomach versus parts of the small intestine in relation to when the animal-based so all of this is based on pH of the stomach. Okay. So stomach is six to eight okay. for the animal and two to 12 for the vegetarian. All of that is based on the, on the pH of the stomach. Okay. But the, the plant-based ones tend to work better in the small intestine because they have- Not better, different. Different. They're not as much, fo they're, they're playing a part in, uh, in digestion. And the thing that the vegetarian ones do better is that they, can di they help with digestion of certain fibers in different vegetarian-based foods. Okay. Right. Like, you know, protease, lipase and amylase are like your big macros, yeah. but you're not looking at all of the other parts of the vegetarian. And, you know, okay. who doesn't have a patient who can't absorb certain fibers? So the way they're acting has more to do with those ingredients than it does to, to, has to do with the pH that they work in. Exactly. Okay. And then last question, how long do you expect before people will feel better? That's a great question. So in my experience, I feel like with EPI, I can keep people on there somewhere between three months to a year, mm -hmm. and I can get most people off of their enzymes at the year mark. Just by tapering? Just by discontinuing. Awesome. Seven, uh, I, uh, 70%, 30%, I can't get them off and they're on dot, dot, dot. Got it. And that's a thing too. Got it. Do we want to do a quick recap? Yeah. I do. Uh, go, go ahead, Dr. Go. Sam. <laughs> um, obvious, but I just completely forgot that uh, fat-soluble vitamins are something we need to be watching out for. Yeah, so we'll talk more about that. Yep. <laughs> I thought you were doing a recap. <laughs> well, that was my takeaway. Oh, okay. Do you have gotcha. a... <laughs> um, I have many, many more questions, and that we should always think about this with any chronic diarrhea patient, and not forget about all the... Th the downstream effects if they're not absorbing fats. And I also didn't know you can often get people off of the enzymes, which I have more questions about. Okay, great. And look for underlying cause. Thanks. Thanks. All right. End of part one. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word.